with all of the shuffle and scuffle of this week. Uh, part of the hand you were dealt was for me to come in and uh, fill in this morning. Uh, and so this morning, our New Testament reading comes from our text, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we'll be looking at um, verses 21 to 39. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 21, or chapter 1, and verses 21 to 39. <clears throat> so let's read the text and get it in front of us. Mark 1, verse 21. And they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, when he entered into the synagogue, he began to teach. And they were astounded over his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Silence, and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him, and letting go with a loud voice, he came out of him. And all were amazed, so that they were debating with one another, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And the report about him went out immediately everywhere throughout all the surrounding territory of Galilee. And immediately when they came out of the synagogue, they went into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was lying ill with a fever, and immediately they tell him about her. And he drew near to her, raised her up when he took hold of her hand, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now when evening came, when the sun had set, they kept bringing to him all who were ill and demon-possessed, and the whole town was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, very early, while it was still dark, he got up and went out and went off to a lonely place and there was praying. And Simon and those who were with him tracked him down and found him. And they say to him, all are seeking you. And he says to them, let us go elsewhere to the upcoming towns in order that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. 
Now, our Father, we ask that you would grant your spirit to us and grant that as he breathes upon the word again, it would become a word of grace for your people to build them up, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. We have a friend uh, who has a certain style in her, in her speech, uh, talking to her on the phone or even visiting with her one-on-one. She uses the word anyway, repeatedly, at, at uh, many, many times. So well, maybe describing something or telling something, and then she's going on to the next uh, the topic and says, anyway, and she goes into that, and a little bit, and anyway, and she goes into a little bit more, and so on. Anyway, I get a little bit tired of hearing anyway repeatedly, but that's just her style. And, and Mark has a certain style as well. Yeah. You may have noticed it, I don't know, but in, he, he loves the adverb immediately. In fact, he uses it something like 40 times in his gospel, immediately. And he likes conjunctions, a particular conjunction, A-N-D, and. and sometimes you may have told, been told in your writing classes uh, that you don't begin a a sentence usually with a conjunction like and. Well, you can cut a little bit of slack there, but, but uh, Mark does. And sometimes he joins the two. Sometimes he says and immediately, as he does two or three times in our text. And immediately. Uh, Mark's always in a hurry. And, and uh, he, he uses that, uh, he'll tell you something, and, 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 it's as if, Here's the next thing he wants to tell you about Jesus. I call Mark the breathless gospel. If you have cardiac problems, you might want to try Matthew or Luke. Uh, because Mark is in such a hurry. He wants to drag you to the next thing to tell you about what Jesus did. So here we have this gospel. In fact, uh, there's a modern translation uh, that I checked uh, just for fun, and uh, at every point in our text where you have the and or the immediately and so on, they, they well, they, they sort of edit it out, so it reads more smoothly. But it's just this immediately, and immediately, it's, it's always there. So Mark is in a hurry to tell you uh, about Jesus. You remember the beginning of his gospel, and this is the beginning, of the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants to tell you about Jesus, and that's what he does here. And he says to you in this text, you have in Jesus a cosmic Savior, a domestic Savior, and a needy Savior. So let's look at the text. First of all, notice that Mark presents to you a cosmic Savior, verses 21 to 28. Now he goes uh, with his disciples. Jesus goes into Capernaum. Capernaum's on the northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, a couple of miles, I think, west of where the Jordan River enters the upper uh, part of the Sea of Galilee. And he's attending the synagogue there, and he, and he teaches there, and he makes a real splash with his teaching. There's a note of authority in it that's so unlike what they're used to from the scribes. 
But then there's something more, and Mark introduces it in verse 23, reading it literally, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Um, And his cry is in verse 24. Uh, What do you want with us? Literally, what what to us and to you? But it has the idea of, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. You see the two notes in verse 24 in the unclean spirits' uh, words. Uh, The note of fear and the note of truth. Note of fear, because they're afraid Jesus is going to destroy them. Um, have you come to destroy us? Answer, yes. First John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God was revealed was in order to destroy the works of the devil. And here Jesus is beginning to do that. Jesus is stalking them. And he has this unclean spirit, which is another word for demons and so on, uh, it, has this fear, and you sense that note of fear. But then there's a note of truth as well. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a confession of truth. It's not a confession of faith. It is truth. He is the Holy One of God. And, And the demon believes that. It's a confession of truth. But it's not a confession of faith. There's a difference, you know. So you have that. Here. Now, what's the significance of Jesus' Sabbath work here in Capernaum? Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, told it to come out of the man, and it convulsed him and uh, let go with a loud cry and came out of him. Now, what's the significance of that episode, that casting out of the demon in the Capernaum synagogue. Well, notice that it must be important for Mark, because this is the first incident in Jesus' ministry that he reports. Oh, he's taken us through Jesus' baptism and so on. He's taken us through a summary of his message. He's taken us through his calling of some initial disciples and so on. But this is the first incident that he reports actually in Jesus' ministry. Why is this the first? It must have a particular significance. And it seems that it does. It is a preview of the final victory over the evil one. This is a present assurance of what will be yet to come. Well, if you want to go clear to the end, practically, Revelation 20, verse 10, when the devil is cast into the lake of fire. But already you see the victory of Jesus over the forces of evil right here. It's something like um, how we used to make homemade ice cream uh, when when I was a a lad. Um, I I was the youngest of five boys, so uh, I got a little 
consideration when we made homemade ice cream. Now, we, we did this in western Pennsylvania. Uh, we didn't do it in the summer. We did it in the winter. Uh, and and uh, <clears throat> we didn't, we had a six-quart crank ice cream freezer. And we'd go down to the basement. We didn't use ice because ice costs money. Uh, but, but if you do make ice cream in the winter, you usually have plenty of snow there. So we'd bring down uh, several bushel baskets of snow into the basement, and uh, there by the drain, we would, we would fill the freezer up with snow and salt and so on, and we would crank and crank, or my brothers and my dad would crank and crank, until they couldn't crank anymore, and then you knew you had your ice cream ready. Then there was a special moment because there would be a cake pan that my dad would take as, as uh, the, the, the ice cream got stiff and so on. And so you take the, the crank off and he lifts up the beater out of, the, out of the, the, the ice cream can. And as he does that, <clears throat> he takes a, a tablespoon and he knocks the, the extra ice cream off of it. He was too thorough. He uh, tended to take all of it off practically. But, but I knew when he pulled that out and when he was done with it, he'd put it in that cake pan and he'd give me the, the tablespoon and I could take that beater with the remaining remnants of the ice cream and I could run up to the kitchen and I could eat it off of, that, off of the beater. And I would want to hurry because I would want to get it before it melted and became ice cream juice and so on. It wasn't much. It wasn't enough, in fact. What you really waited for was when, after supper, you brought up the, the ice cream, that, the, the bucket that you had, had uh, cranked the ice cream in, and you put it in the kitchen sink, and you took the big soup dipper out, and you scooped up two or three scoops into every bowl when you sat down and you ate it as fast as you could so you might get seconds and so on. And nothing was ever left over. He, he took care of the whole six quarts. But you see that, that little bit of ice cream on the, on the ice cream beater and so on that I had was the same stuff as I'd get later when we really had the ice cream. It wasn't enough. I always wanted more. It was just a little bit, but it was the same thing. That's sort of the idea here. This isn't the final victory of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ over the evil one, but it's a preliminary victory. It's a little foretaste ahead of time of what's coming later. That's what Mark wants you to see. It's a foretaste of the final victory. Do you sense the assurance that this ought to give to us, the people of God, and to disciples of Jesus? There's no doubt about the final outcome in the cosmic war. You already have Jesus showing you the initial victory, or an initial victory. Now, this isn't going to bring any relief to you if you're in the throes of dying of cancer. It's not going to comfort your broken heart if you've just discovered that your spouse has been unfaithful. It's not going to answer all your problems, etc. But it does show you that you can live 
in a threatening world without final terror. And you can do that because Jesus is supreme over Satan and all his toadies. And Mark would say to you, and don't forget where you saw that, in a synagogue in Capernaum, of all things. Jesus, Mark says, is a cosmic savior. And then secondly, Mark says, Jesus is a domestic savior. You notice in verses 29 to 31, immediately, he says, uh, when they went out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew, along with James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law was lying there with a fever, and immediately they tell him about her. Jesus goes, takes hold of her, raises her up, takes hold of her hand, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, there's an important detail there, it seems to me, in the last of verse uh, 30. Uh, Just those simple words, and immediately they tell him about her, about Peter's mother-in-law and her fever. Um, now, you have to be careful with, with some of these um, elements in the, in the text. That seems to me that might be an important detail, but how much weight do you put on what may just be a casual remark? They, they told Jesus about her. Or is that just a casual remark? Hard to say, perhaps, isn't it? It was... Um, Seems to me it may well be. You know, about 1894, uh, there was a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Elisha Hoffman. He was uh, serving in a town called Vassar, Michigan, and he was visiting an elderly lady in his congregation who uh, was going through a great deal of uh, distress and and, um, trouble at the time. And she shared her problems with her pastor. He, uh, in turn, directed her to certain passages of scripture and so on, tried to encourage her by that. And then he happened to say, as he urged her to pray and to tell her problems to Jesus, that somehow seemed to strike her. And she smiled and she exclaimed, yes, I must tell Jesus So as Elisha Hoffman went back and left her that day, what that woman said, I must tell Jesus, kept hanging on his his mind. And uh, when he got home, he put together certain lines that seemed to fall together, and you perhaps have heard of that gospel song, I must tell Jesus all of my trials, I cannot bear my burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. Is Mark telling us that by these simple words that maybe that's what we need to do? Uh, In any case, that's what they did. Uh, That was the first step, isn't it? Always. Now, 
What I want you to see here, though, particularly in verses 29 to 31, is that there's a comforting contrast here with what went before in verses 21 to 28. In verses 21 to 28, you might say you see the vast worldwide spiritual war in which Jesus is being victorious. But in 29 to 31, the focus is on a personal individual need. So you go from something that is um, vast and, and so on, something that is very almost hidden and so on. And it wasn't a frivolous need. When she's burning up with fever, she doesn't have, they don't have antibiotics, etc. You don't know what that may have led to. It was a real need, but it was a private need. It was a personal need, though it was a genuine one. And it was so complete that she could begin to serve them their lunch uh, when she was raised up. But it's a whole different arena from what you have in verses 21 to 28. And that's the beauty of it. It's showing you that Jesus is what I would call an omnicompetent Savior. Uh, That is, you see him both in the big drama, verses 21 to 28, but also in the private need, verses 29 to 31. Uh, Not just on the big stage, but also operating on the small scene. So that the mighty voice that smashes Satan's empire in the one incident also has the kind hand that lifts someone from a sickbed. He's a domestic savior as well. Uh, Sometimes we, analogies fail us, but um, it reminds me of something uh, reading about uh, President Abraham Lincoln. Now, I don't know whether you like Lincoln or not. Uh, I have problems with him as uh, even a, a northerner. I have problems with the way he conducted some of his presidency and some of his political maneuverings and so on. But we don't have to worry about that. It's just a matter of a, a principle involved. And, and uh, on one hand, uh, his, his wife, Mary Lincoln, was once complaining to uh, Noah Brooks uh, about the way President Lincoln operated. Uh, She said to him, he's so like a child. I sometimes wonder if he understands even that he is the president. I cannot teach him. He will see them all, mere servants, washerwomen, anyone. He talks with anyone who will come, the wounded office hunters, women with dead or wounded boys. Now see what she's saying. He's the president for crying out loud, and yet look at all the low stuff he gets himself involved in, and so on. At that time, uh, people could have access to the president uh, and and talk to him directly and consult with him, and uh, that's what some of them did. And so there was this day, I think it was in early 1865, when one of Lincoln's friends, Joshua Speed, came to visit him at the White House. Uh, Lincoln was involved with someone, and so Speed had to wait until Lincoln was done. 
there were two women from western Pennsylvania who were pleading with Lincoln to please have their, well, one of them was his mother, the other was his wife, to please have this man who had been imprisoned because he had resisted the draft, to please have this man released. And so they were begging Lincoln to intervene on their behalf. He granted their request. And so uh, they were practically ready to worship Lincoln for this. Then anyway, he was done with that. He goes back and he visits with his friend Speed. He takes his boots off. He puts his feet up near the fire. And he's obviously exhausted. And Joshua Speed tells him that he's so exhausted he oughtn't to be messing around, spending his time on petitioners like these two women. And Lincoln said... How mistaken you are. I have made two people happy today. But that's the sort of combination you see in our text. Here's a president who has to run a war at that time, has to deal with political maneuverings and all the big matters of his office, and yet he has time for two women from western Pennsylvania, of all things. Well, that's the sort of sequence you see with Jesus here, isn't it? Are we spiritualizing the text too much to say that Jesus is willing to come into your home as well? To know the needs there? Well, you can tell him about them, you know, verse 30. Isn't it amazing that the Jesus who trounces Satan's lackeys, verses 21 to 28, also makes house calls, verses 29 to 31. Mark says, you have a domestic Savior. You have a Savior who's not ashamed to come into your home. And then thirdly, Mark is saying you have a needy Savior. Needy, N-E-E-D-Y, a needy Savior. And here we go, especially in focus on verse 35, in its context. And in the morning, very early, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and went off to a lonely place, and there was praying. That's verse 35. Now I want you to look at that. In its context. And uh, what's the context there? Well, you notice there's a splendid success, really, in verses 32 to 34. Because when it came evening, you remember Mark told you in verse 21 that it was a Sabbath when he went into the Capernaum synagogue. Well, it's still a Sabbath, But when it becomes evening, the Sabbath is over. The sun had set. So these Jewish people felt free then, since the Sabbath was over, to come and they come flocking to the house, where uh, Peter's house, where where Jesus is. And you notice how they they have those who were ill, those who were demon-possessed, and Jesus healed many who were were afflicted with all kinds of illnesses and cast out many demons, etc. So, 
What a splendid success in that post-Sabbath ministry. And then you notice his high approval rating in verses 36 and 37. They can't find Jesus early the next morning. He's not there. And so Simon and those with him go to track him down. And they say, everybody's looking for you. Everybody wants you. So this high popular approval. But in the middle of all this, there's verse 35. In the morning, very early, while it was still dark, Jesus goes out to a lonely place and there he was praying. Now why? Why does Jesus have to pray at a time like that? Well, this may be a little bit Am I reading into it or not? I don't think so, but you may. You remember that in Hebrews 5.7, it says that in the days of his flesh, he, that is Jesus, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, usually when we look at Hebrews 5.7, we connect that especially with Jesus' agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I think rightly so. But does that mean that's the only time in Jesus' ministry and in the days of his flesh that he, is that the only time when he offered up prayers and supplications, etc., with cries and tears to his Father? Or were there other times when he did that as well? You see, what you have here is you have the Jesus bandwagon going with his popularity and his attractiveness and, and so on. And I wonder if that was when Jesus heard a familiar voice. Now you remember that in verses 12 and 13, Mark tells about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, you have a little bit more detail about that. Do you suppose that in the light of this popularity and so on, and successful ministry here in Capernaum, Jesus may have heard a familiar voice saying something like, All these things I will give you, if only. That it was the temptation coming back again. You remember in Luke 4.13, after the temptation narrative, it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. So here it comes probably again. Another wave of temptation. See, it's as if... It's as if The tempter is saying, if you keep meeting their felt needs, Jesus, you'll have their devotion. And you can be a crossless Messiah. Jesus had already taken upon him the burden of the cross at his baptism. That was a baptism of repentance. It was John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. And Jesus submitted to it, but he had no need for repentance. But the fact that he stood there and was baptized with, 
what was a baptism of repentance meant that he was standing in the sinner's place and was willing to do that, and he committed himself to the path of the cross. But you see, there's another possibility. You can win favor. You can win success. If only you keep meeting their felt needs. And that was a temptation. You have a needy Savior here. Now, I think that's a plus. How so? Let me come at it from the back door, as it were. During the Revolutionary War, uh, there was a, a general by the name of Charles Lee who was apparently... Uh, for the uh, Americans, uh, colonials. Uh, Charles Lee was uh, self-aggrandizing. He was cocky. He was arrogant. He was a jerk, you could say. Uh, but but uh, he was always promoting himself and so on. And, and he was involved in undercutting General Washington. Uh, he was a devious fellow. He was full of hot air and so on. And uh, about 1778, when the, the uh, colonials and the Continental Army were shadowing the British as they were going up through New Jersey to, to New York, uh, Washington had put, I think, about half of his army in charge of General Lee and so on. Uh, he, um, he, he told uh, Charles Lee that gave him orders to attack at certain points, and Lee never did it. Uh, I think he was finally cashiered on, on, uh, at that time. Uh, but Thomas Fleming, a historian uh, especially of our Revolutionary War, said that what is often seldom considered is the fact that this Charles Lee, this self-proclaimed military genius, had never commanded an army in battle before. Oh, he had been a company commander in the French and Indian War. He had, uh, sometime in Europe, uh, made a successful raid on a Spanish army camp and so on. But as far as commanding an army in battle, he had never done that. In fact, he says, he had never gotten anywhere really near a battlefield. But here he was promoting himself and so on. You don't want a general like that, who has never commanded an army in battle. And you don't want a savior who doesn't know what it's like to face temptation. You remember what Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says. Remember how it, how it reads... But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every respect, like we have, without sin. And then it draws the conclusion, Let us therefore come with boldness to the throne of grace, in order that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help at just the right time. What's the argument there? 
The argument is that we don't have a Savior with a defect, like Charles Lee, for example. No, no, we have one who has been tempted, who knows what it is to be needy in the face of temptation, who has to get out to a lonely place in order to pray to his Father for the grace and strength he needs to face it. And so we come to the throne of grace in order that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at just the right time. The throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. What's that? Well, there's someone who sits on the throne of grace. Who is that? Verse 15, Hebrews 4.15, previous verse. It's the tempted one who sits on the throne of grace and gives you grace at just the right time. He's a needy Savior. And because he has faced that, he is able to come to your aid. And so we need, this is not saying to us, that we too need to stay close to the Father amid the finest successes of life. For often in your finest successes, there lurks the gravest danger to your own soul. And we have hope because we have a needy Savior who knew how to cast himself upon his Father. So, here Mark shows you a cosmic Savior, a domestic Savior, a needy Savior. And he shows you him because he wants you to lay hold of him. Let us pray. Thank you, O God, for your servant Mark and for his gospel. Thank you for the tour he gives us from synagogue to home to lonely place and for showing us our Savior there. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.